Full announcements before we get started. Uh, tonight we have our church family meeting at 6 o'clock, so if you're a member of Redeemer Bible Church, please make it a point to be with us tonight. Um, and then one, just one more announcement. October 28th, uh, towards the end of this month, on Saturday, we're going to have our Harvest Festival. And that's going to be a little later. We're going to try a little later uh, this time, so from 5 to 7. Keep it short and sweet, and uh, it should just be a wonderful, fun time uh, for all our families. Uh, friends and family are invited, so if you have friends and family that you want to invite to join us, by all means, uh, invite them, please. Uh, we're accepting candy donations uh, for the next couple of Sundays, so um, please be bringing those so we have plenty to, to hand out. We're doing a trunk or treat uh, for that, so uh, and that's going to be on a sign-up only basis. So talk to Mallory Salazar for more details. If you want to be part of that trunk or treat and help us out in any way, let her know and so that we can orchestrate everything and get everything working together. It should be a wonderful time really fun time with, with everybody. It's always a sweet time where we can fellowship, and there's going to be a gospel presentation, so uh, please invite, uh, again, friends and family so that they might hear the gospel during that time as well. Would you stand with me, please, as we begin our time of worship?
How about there? There we go. My fault. On Psalm 61, uh, speaking of the, the mercies of God and just how precious God's mercy is. Uh, if you don't know what mercy means, it, it's, it's often a, a phrase that we, or a word that we just kind of toss around and maybe forget what it really means. It, it, it means that uh, God does not give us the judgment and the punishment that we deserve. He holds back his wrath. That's mercy. Praise the Lord that his mercy is greater than our sin, isn't it? Psalm 61, verse 1 through 4 says, Hear my cry of lamentation, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Amazing how he says, from the end of the earth I call to you. Sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? Like you're just on the edge of the earth and and you're just far away from God. He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength before the enemy. Let me sojourn in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. What a sweet reminder. Let's pray. Lord, we do come to you that this morning, this way. And certainly, Lord, there are some among us that barely got here this morning. Uh, where they, we seem, we feel far from you. We're like we're on the other side of the world and you're on the other. And our heart grows faint, Lord, when we, are, when we feel away from you, when we feel distant from you. But Lord, you remind us in your word that you are a constant and, and faithful refuge. You're a place of rest and you're always there right beside us. Though it may not feel that way. Oh Lord, I pray for that struggling saint this morning that is a smoldering wick, a bruised reed. I pray, Lord, that you would minister to their hearts. Remind them of the faithful love that you have for them. Remind them that no matter what they've gone through this week, their safety and rest in you, they simply must come. Oh, Lord, may we come to you this morning, uh, a needy people. Well, we don't have it all figured out, Lord. We, we need you. So guide us and minister to your people this morning. And would you be so kind as to save someone in our midst, Lord? Certainly there, there might be some among us that don't know you. Or maybe even think they know you, but don't in reality. Oh, Lord, help us to examine our hearts to see if we are in the faith or not. And Lord, if we're not, there is still an open invitation to come to Christ. Find forgiveness. Oh Lord, may we find refuge in Christ. May the sinner find refuge and safety in the cross. Safety and rescue from your very wrath. What a delight it is to be in your presence, God. May we find all that we need there in your hands. You tell us that in your right hand are pleasures forever. You're, you're, they're there, Lord, in your hand, ready to be dispensed to us. 
Oh, Lord, may we partake of that this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give us soft hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's continue to sing.
Amen. Uh, just a, a quick uh, announcement. Uh, next week we will be dealing with a uh, family uh, issue, a church discipline issue, so please uh, make it a point to be with us next week. We'll bring it up uh, immediately following the service. Uh, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 4. Uh, we'll see if we get through it. Uh, I have my doubts <laughs> this morning. So this might be part one, probably is, but we'll, we'll see. Um, let me read verses 1 through 4 for us this morning. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested and then you also will be manifested with him in glory. What an amazing passage. The title of this sermon is Seeking the Things Above. Seeking the Things Above. And quite simply this morning, dear church, I desire that uh, you would prize Christ above all else. That you would prize Christ above all else. Uh, there's a story of Alexander the Great where he was 10 years into his reign, 10 years of conquest of nation after nation and um, looting those nations and getting all the gold and the valuables from those nations. 10 years in, uh, Alexander the Great heard about this other, other nation, this other land, rich with treasures. It was the land of India. And upon hearing of the riches that lie there, he left behind all of his gold and began his next war campaign into the land of India. As he entered into that region, he left behind the countless riches that he had accumulated over the past 10 years of conquering nation after nation after nation. He set all that aside so that he could go on another, another campaign. And so light did he travel that he was asked, what are you keeping for yourself? You've left behind everything. What are you bringing with you? To that he answered, Spem majorum et melorium, which means the hope of better and greater things. That's what he took with him. A sword, you could say, and hope. Sword in one hand, hope 
in the other. Hope for what? More riches for him. What were those better and greater things? It was the, the, the rubies and jewels and the gold of India. But Christian, when you came to Christ, you left behind all the treasures of this world. And all you had, all you took with you is hope of better and greater things. When you became a Christian, dear saint, you left behind all the vices, all the pursuits, all the priorities and sins of this world. You set them all aside so that you can have what? A greater treasure. And when an unbeliever asks a Christian, why are you giving up all the stuff that you used to live for? What do you have left in your life? You've left it all behind. The believer can answer the hope. I have hope for better and greater things. I now pursue the things above where Christ is, not the things of this world. So in this passage we are given a description of what it means to seek the things above. It is to have a mind that is directed to Christ and a life that is defined by Christ. That's what it means. That's what it looks like. That's what it is to seek the things above. A mind directed to Christ and a life Defined by Christ. First of all, a mind directed to Christ. Verse 1 and 2, let, let's read it again. It's so uh, rich, these first two verses. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, see, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. So what Paul does here in this new life of the Christian, he first focuses on the life of the inner man. He's answering the question for the Christian, what preoccupies you? What preoccupies your thoughts, your time, your ambition, your desires? It's, it's a lot like the moon that controls the tides of the sea, doesn't it? The gravitational pull of the moon uh, 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 has a great influence on the ebb and the flow of the tides and the waves. Well, what controls the ebb and the flow of your soul, Christian? That's the question. It must be Christ alone. Nothing else will do. That's the reality of it. Nothing else will do. Nothing else is sufficient enough to be like that moon to the sea in regards to your soul. He says, 
Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. Now, this is a past completed action of God, this raising up with Christ. If you would look with me at chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Uh, he said it already, having been buried with him in baptism. He's describing in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, uh, what it means to become a Christian. Having been buried with him, with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him. That is, the Father made you alive with Christ, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions. So this is something that happens at conversion. You die with Christ, and then you are raised with Christ. If you look a little farther, he's actually continuing a, a larger thought. Notice in chapter 2, verse 20, at the end of chapter 2, in verse 20, it says, if you have died with Christ, and then jump to chapter 3, verse 1, our passage. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. They're parallel. And so this is the second part of a larger argument or a larger thought. He said in verse 20 through 23 that the Christian is one who has died with Christ to the elementary things and elementary principles of this world, to that low morality, that, that Christless religion uh, that is so prevalent in the American church today. He says, you've died to that, and then you haven't just stayed dead, but in chapter 3, verse 1, he continues on the same thought. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ. So those who have died with Christ are those who have been raised up with Christ. There is no Christian in this spiritual slumber or spiritual tomb that has died with Christ but is not having this new life in him. They are part of the same miracle of salvation. What this means is that the Christian life is not merely the stopping of doing bad deeds. That's just one half. It's not just stopping uh, the action of, of sin. It's not just stopping that vice that controls you. But it is also the entrance into a whole new way of living. That's Christianity. That's what it means uh, to be living the Christian life. It's not just a cessation, a stopping of your former sins, but it is a new beginning into this new life, new patterns, new thoughts, new desires, new direction of your life. And this is all over Scripture, but especially in Romans 6. It says that uh, we were buried with him, with Christ, through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So in Romans 6, there is a connection between being raised with Christ and walking in newness of life. And then later on in Romans 6.11 
He applies it. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the Christian life. The old me has died. The the new me has been created in the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. And I now live differently. I walk with a newness of life. I am now alive to God. That's relational. I'm dead to the world. Right? We, we've all had those, uh, I think, relationships where they're strained and there comes a point where the thought is, you know what, I just would rather that I never knew you. I never knew this person. And I'm just, you know what, I'm just going to move on from this point in my life and just pretend like this person doesn't exist. He's dead to me. She's dead to me. Right? Now, that's a, that's a sinful response, of course, but nonetheless, uh, it, it illustrates this relationship. The world, for the Christian, the, the Christian can say, to the world, you're dead to me. And now, God, I'm alive to you now. There, that relationship with the world and my old self, that's gone, it's a thing of the past. I... I, I, I I'm trying to put off the patterns and, and the habits of that old life, the vestiges of it, the, 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 the stains of the old life, the old remnants, of course. There's that struggle of the flesh. But the direction of my life is a, such a direction that it is completely new. Where I used to be dead to God, and God was dead to me, now that has been transformed into I am alive to God. And I have an intimate, glorious, uh, delightful relationship with Him. That's the Christian life. This is what you have, Christian. Oh, make the most of it. Utilize this reality. Re- remember and remind yourself, I have been raised up with Christ. Oh, each day you need to remind yourself, I have died to sin and I've been raised up with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Remind yourself of that every day, especially if you're trying to, to fight that sin in your life. You need to be reminded that of these realities. This isn't something that you conjure up, something that you motivate or, or work up in your spiritual fervor, This is a reality that you just employ in your Christian life. He says, if this is true, if you have been raised up with Christ, then he says, well, then the the logical outcome is keep seeking the things above. It just makes sense. This new life is a life that comes from above. I have been born of God, born of the Holy Spirit. And now my orientation, my prime uh, uh, perspective is upward. It's to the things above. Now, the things above. The, the, the wording there, uh, we can, it, it, it's, it's right to implant all sorts of Uh, not so helpful thoughts when he says things above it's not speaking of particular items that are in heaven 
like the streets of gold or the gates of pearl or what kind of chair you're going to have, what, the, what color the walls are going to be like, or, or what furniture I'm going to have in heaven. He's not talking about items or anything else like that. How do we know that? Well, before we look at what it is, look at the, the opposite of it. In verse 5, he uses similar wording, though in a different way. He says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Now the wording here doesn't come across in the English, but the wording is identical with the things that are on the earth. At the end of uh, verse 2, he says, uh, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth in verse 2. So there's this difference. I am to seek the things above, not the things that are on the earth. Now that phrase in, at the end of verse 2, not the things that are on the earth, is identical to the phrase in verse 5. Therefore considers the members of your earthly body as dead. Uh, literally, the idea is, therefore, consider as dead uh, the members of the earth, the things of the earth. And he describes what those are. What are the things of the earth? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. That's the things of the earth. It's not items. What is it? The things, the things are, are, are speaking of the pursuits, the ways, the desires, the loves, the priorities, the thoughts that are characteristic of the heavenly realm. You see, in verse 5, he says, there are pursuits and ways and desires, loves, priorities, and thoughts that are characteristic of of the earthly realm, of sin, of fallen humanity. But he says, don't seek those things. Seek the things above. Not the chairs. Not what kind of rug you're going to have in heaven. No. Seek the pursuits of above. Seek the ways of heaven. The desires of of the realm of God, the loves and priorities and the thoughts of the heavenly realm. And here he says to seek those things. It's very specific, the wording. Because he's going to go on to say, think about these things. But here first he says, seek them. It is, to, to seek is to pursue to desire, to chase after. That's what it means to seek. And so what he's saying here is, what is the pursuit of your life? May it be for the Christian that the pursuit of your life is oriented towards the things that are above. 
And this is to be an ongoing, it's a present tense, ongoing, continuous seeking. There's no day off for the Christian in this kind of seeking. You don't get to seek the things above when it's convenient for you and then seek the things of this earth, that old life, the things of this world, uh, Monday through Saturday. You don't just put in your time. This seeking is all-consuming. It is all of your pursuits, all of your ways, all of your desires, all of your loves and priorities, all of your thoughts are, are, are in pursuit of, chasing after the things above, the things of heaven. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean, the things above? Well, he crystallizes it. In the next phrase, where Christ is. You see, Christ himself is the defining figure of the things that are above. He is the essence of the above things. He is the core and, 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 and blazing heart of heaven he is the hope of heaven isn't he Colossians 1.27 says that Christ is the hope of glory he is, he is the hope of glory that is what is what is the Christian's, where, where is the Christian's hope connected to? When an anchor on a ship is cast down into the sea, what, is it, what does it grab onto? It needs to grab onto the, to the seabed, to the floor of the ocean. And only if it, if, if it lands there and digs into that, into that earth will it be anchored. If, if the anchor is dropped just 50 feet down and it doesn't hit the bottom, it's not anchored. And so it is with our heart. What's the anchor of our soul? Where, where are we rooted? Where, where do we find that stability? It's in our hope. Well, what is our hope in? What is the essence of our hope? What are we hoping for? It's Christ. Christ is himself so christian the anchor of your soul stretches into heaven it says in hebrews into the veil and 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 it it draws you right as your soul is is anchored in christ in heaven what happens is as you reel in the anchor your soul is drawn to heaven and nothing can undo that anchor So seek the things above where Christ is. He must be who and what you seek. What does that mean? He is your life's pursuit. Remember, that's what seek means, right? Christ himself must be the Christian's life pursuit. He must be the way of the believer. 
That is, that He is our model for living. He is to be the Christian's chief desire. His chief longing. Oh, does your soul hunger and thirst? Is your soul dry and weary? No amount of Netflix or uh, religiosity or good deeds or money or people. Nothing will quench it. Nothing will satiate the hunger of the soul but Christ. It's not that nothing will satisfy you like Christ, though that's true. That's not enough. It's nothing will satisfy you but Christ. There's a difference, isn't there? If we just say, you know, he, Christ is a better satisfaction, well, then if I just get more of these lesser satisfactions, then that can add up and I'll be okay. My soul will be whole. No, 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 friend. Only Christ can satisfy. Nothing else is up to the task. Nothing else fits. Nothing else works. All else is, is poison to the soul. It is like a false medication. It's like jello. To the soul. You can, it doesn't matter how much you eat, you will die if all you eat is jello. And it can be the greatest flavor. It can be your favorite flavor. Grape, cherry, strawberry, whatever you want. It doesn't matter, does it? Doesn't matter how much delight is, is there momentarily. Only Christ can be the soul nourishment that you need. Everything else is a false and vain imitation. This means also, Christian, that Christ is to be your prime love in life. To keep seeking the things above where Christ is means that you love Him the most. That you love Him the most. Not only this, but He is your ultimate priority. He is your ultimate priority. That means that all other ambitions of life come secondary. Whether your ambition and your desire is a good one. It might be to get married or to have a job or to be able to pay the bills or be able to put your kids through college or, or whatever else. Have, have friends. Have a companion. Uh, whatever those things might be. All those other priorities must be subjugated to the ultimate priority of Christ. Doesn't he say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Nothing else but Christ deserves first place in your 
Seeking. It's interesting that it's the same word, isn't it? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does that mean? Seek the things above where Christ is. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Not only this, but he is to be the object of your thoughts. After all, Jesus Christ is the object of all thoughts, all desires, all love, all priorities of heaven. John 17, 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So to know God, to know Christ, is eternal life. So what's happening in heaven? And what are we initiated into now and have tastes of now in this life? It's knowing God. It's knowing Christ. What will we be doing for all eternity in heaven? Knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's what it means to be in heaven. This unfiltered, unhindered, limitless knowing of Christ. So much so that you will be filled and filled and filled with satisfaction in Him. It will be like wave after wave after wave of delights in heaven. The, 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 the next one better than the previous, if that's possible. I speak in human terms. So the Christian's calling is to pursue, again, to seek the things above where Christ is. The Christian's calling in life is to pursue, to desire, to chase after Christ. Jeremiah 9 23 and 24 says, Thus says Yahweh, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. That sounds like seeking the things that are on the earth, doesn't it? Boasting in your wisdom, your might, and your riches. God says, Don't boast in those things. Verse 24, But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who shows loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. Let the the crowning reality of your life be Not your income, not your title on your desk at work, uh, not your legacy of your life. No, let the crowning reality of your life be, I know Christ. What else is better? Who gives a rip about my legacy or about my, my title? or my reputation, or my riches, or my intellect, or my influence, or my might. 
What are those things in comparison to just knowing Him? Just to have a relationship with my Savior is everything. Paul, this is his heart in Philippians 3, verse 8. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost because of what? The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. What is... What is the the fame and the riches and the might of this world in comparison to Christ, to having Him, to gaining Him? It's dung. It's refuse. In light of Him, those things of this world are repulsive to me. And I hate them. Why? Because they draw my heart away from the chief delight. I hate the things of this world because they draw me away from Him. Oh, may our hearts be this way. May we count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, what Paul is exhorting us to do here is to take the delights of heaven and to feast on them now. Right? He's saying, pursue the things that are above. And we might say, well, that's going to, I have to wait. I'm not above you. I'm not in heaven yet, Paul. How can I seek and pursue the things above? Are you just holding a carrot out in front of my my face and tell me to pursue them even though they're going to always be out of grasp? No. Why would he tell us to seek the things above if we cannot delight in them now? Thomas Brooks says that divine hope takes in the pleasures of heaven beforehand. It lives in the joyful expectation of them. It delights itself in the pleasures and joys of eternity. That is your Christian life today, dear child of God. Today, you are exhorted and called and beckoned by your Savior. Come to me. Come. Come and delight yourself in the pleasures and the joys of heaven here on earth. You can have it now. Oh, what a, what, a, what a generous God that we have. He doesn't say, you know, you got to prove yourself first. You got to make it to the end. Then I'll, then I'll reward you. Then I'll give you some delight. Then I'll fulfill you. He doesn't do that. He gives it all now. And it's there waiting for you, Christian. It's there waiting for you. Each day you wake up and your Bible sits there on the shelf. Each day it's there waiting for you.
What is this delight? What is this thing? What is so great about the things above where Christ is? Well, he explains it's because he's seated at the right hand of God. Seated at the right hand of God. There are five ways that this phrase is significant. Five ways where the reality of Christ seated at the right hand of God should delight your soul and and should prove himself worthy of your pursuits. One is that this is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. The fact that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God was foretold in ages past. Verses like Psalm 110 verse 1, of course. Yahweh says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. This was anticipated long ago. And there was coming a time, coming a moment, when the Father would say to the Son, sit at my right hand. And although God is outside the, the, the confines of time, certainly God's people have longed and waited for this time when Yahweh would say to this Lord, to this Master, to this King, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And what's glorious is that this promise, this anticipation, this prophecy of Christ came to fulfillment. God is a God who keeps his promises. It doesn't matter how long it takes. It doesn't matter what happens in the in-between time. He, if he makes a promise, he keeps it. And so... With, with that thought in mind, with the fact that it might take a while, but God's going to come through. God's going to show up. God's going to help me. God's going to defend me. God's going to provide for me. It might take a while. He might make me sweat, but it's going to happen. Why? Because Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's why. He, he made good on that promise. Certainly he's going to keep his word on my promises that he's made to me. Second, second significance of Christ being seated at the right hand of God is that he is seated because his priestly work of sacrifice has been finished. Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ is the radiance of his glory, the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the, power, by the word of his power. And who, listen to this, who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the, so the seating down of Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, the seating down of Christ at the right hand of the Father <clears throat> is, is proof, his seating is proof 
that he has fully accomplished the cleansing for sin. That means that there is nothing left for you to pay, Christian. Uh, Dear lost one, dear sinner, who hasn't bowed the knee to Christ and placed your faith in him, you don't need to be good enough. Trust me, because you never will be. You're worse than you think you are. That's the reality. You don't know the half of it. You don't know the half of your sins. Oh, but the glory of the gospel is that though I have a mountain of sin that cries out judgment upon me, the fact that I can look with the eyes of faith and see Christ seated down at God's right hand proves to me it's all been paid for. And I am clean in the sight of God. This is contrasted with the Old Testament priests in Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, where it says every priest stands daily ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, that is Christ, having offered One sacrifice for sins for all time. What did he do? Sat down at the right hand of God. He just had to offer one sacrifice to accomplish the taking away of sin. Sin is gone, Christian. God says... As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sin from you. God says, I will remember their sins no more. He doesn't get amnesia. He willfully, volitionally decides, I'm never going to bring it up. I'm never going to go in your archives and pull it out of the database. I'm never going to go into the back room and pull out the, sh- and pull out the old documents of your past sin. I'm never going to scroll down to the bottom of your feed and, br- and drudge up all that old foolishness of yours. It's gone, he says. How do I know that? How do I know it's gone? He's seated. The work is done. third significance of his, him being seated is that Christ is seated at the right hand of God because that is the place of honor. It's the place of honor. Hebrews 12, 2 says we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of faith. It's saying the same things. Keep seeking the things above. Fix your eyes on Jesus. It's the same thing. It's a pattern, isn't it? It's everywhere, isn't it? Notice the wording, though. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He contrasts and connects the despising of the shame and the seating down at the right hand of the throne of God. So he's contrasting shame with honor here. He despised the shame. 
He thought little of the shame he would have to endure there on the cross here on the earth because he knew that there would come a time when he would be honored. How? Honored in what way? He would be seated at God's right hand. And this is an honor that is reserved for Christ and Christ alone. Not even the angels of the heavenly realm can lay hold of this honor. Hebrews 1.13 says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand? Which one? Michael, the archangel? No. The, the most faithful angels? These are unfallen beings, mind you. Not even those perfect unfallen beings are deserving of the honor of the Father saying, sit at my right hand. I have a special place just for you. That is the view of the Father towards the Son. I reserve this special place just for you. You are seated at the head of the banquet table. You are seated at the right hand of the throne. You are distinct and set apart in every way. The fourth way that Christ being seated at the right hand of God is significant is that he is seated at the right hand of God because the Father takes great delight in him. The Father takes great delight in his victorious Son. I mean, didn't the Father declare twice, once in Matthew 13 and again in Matthew, excuse me, once in Matthew 3 and again in Matthew 17, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. How much more can he say about his Son? He is a beloved Son to the Father. Dear to his heart. When the father, as it were, thinks of his son, it is like his heart races. Though he has no heart because he's, he's spirit. I understand that. It is as if his heart races with delight. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father doesn't just put up with the son. He doesn't tolerate him. But he is well pleased in him. He's proud of his son. He is happy when thoughts of the son come across his mind. One author, John Flavel, or Flavel, Flavel, however fancy you want to get. I say Flavel. Uh, speaking of the Father's delight in the crucified, buried, risen, and ascended Christ, speaking of the Father's delight in the Son, John Flavel wrote, It is as if he had said, O oh, my Son, what shall be done for you this day? 
you have finished a great work. And in all the parts of it, you have acquitted yourself as an able and a faithful servant to me. What honors shall I now bestow upon you? The highest glory in heaven is not too high for you. Come, sit at my right hand. What delight the father has in his son. That he wants him to be there, as it were, near to him. Not too far, but close at his very right hand. It is to communicate a delight in him, a longing for him, a wanting to be with him. And Christian, fifthly, don't forget a great significance of Christ being seated at the right hand of God is that he is doing something there right now, isn't he? Amen. Romans eight thirty four. who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Oh, he brings me uh, great delight. this, This reality of Christ being at the right hand of the Father is a comfort to my soul because he is there ever living to make intercession for me and for you, Christian. He doesn't have to walk down the halls of heaven. He doesn't have to make an appointment with the Father so that He can plead your case. He's right there. As soon as you sin, as soon as you slip, Christian, He's right there. Oh, don't forsake Him, Father. I died for Him. I bled for her. Don't, don't turn your back. I know you wouldn't because you sent me because you love them. But oh, I show you my scars. See them again. It's all paid for. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so he says, set your mind, verse 2, on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Christian, set your mind on the things above. Think of Christ there in all his glory, in all that he does for you, in all that, that it means for him to be there at the right hand of God. Let your mind wander there. He says, set your mind on the things above. This is is no passing thought. This is no trivial glance of the mind. And, And may I be as practical as to say, this is not accomplished in 15 minutes out of your day. There are 1,440 minutes in the day. You cannot set your mind on the things above If you just read and then leave it behind. It's not what it means. To set your mind is to fixate your thoughts on Christ. It is to give careful thought and consideration. 
It is to want to learn about Jesus. Well, I don't care how long you've been a Christian. You have more to learn of him. We, have, we all have much more to learn, not just of how to live and, 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 and how to uh, represent the Lord on this earth and how to be like Christ, but we have more to learn of him. There are deeper recesses. There are deeper uh, uh, valleys. There are deeper uh, depths of ocean, of glory, of Christ to be explored, Christian. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. You haven't reached the end. And so to set your mind on the things above, is to set your mind on Christ, it is to be, be hungry to learn more about Him. So may I ask you, when's the last time you read a book about Jesus? Or about His gospel? Maybe it's time to learn something new. Or to be reminded of old truths. Or to learn old truths to new depths. Give careful thought and consideration of Christ. The best way to do this is to meditate on Christ throughout the day. That is to search the scriptures early in the morning, digging for that jewel of Christ. And once you find that jewel of his glory, you you put it in your pocket and you take it with you wherever you go throughout the day. Every so often, pulling pulling that jewel of the glory of Christ out and looking at it. Holding it to the light, as it were. Inspecting it. Learning new things about new angles of that jewel. Finding more delight in it. That is, Christian, let him preoccupy your mind. Let him preoccupy your mind. Do not let your mind wander too far away from the cross where he died, nor from the throne where he now sits. Fix your hope on him. Long for him and think of him often. This will help you, especially as you live in this world of difficulty. Thomas Brooks says, hope can see heaven through the thickest clouds. Hope can see light through darkness, life through death, smiles through frowns, and glory through misery. What is he saying? If I fix my gaze on Christ, it doesn't matter what I go through, I can still have delight. I can still rejoice. I got something to sing about. I got something to hope on. I got something to trust in. And it's him. And he says, not the things that are on earth. Do not set your mind on the things that are on earth, Christian. Because if we truly understand and see the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, then the things of the earth cannot compare, can they? It's the difference between a ribeye steak and a piece of pocket. There's just no comparison. John Owen wrote, The way to behold the glory of Christ is by the steady exercise of faith on the revelation of his glory given to us in Scripture. How do you see the glory of Christ? 
You get your nose in Scripture. It is our duty, John Owen says, it is our duty, therefore, constantly to meditate on the glory of Christ. This will fill us with the joy which will in turn move us to meditate on his glory more and more. What is he saying? Just, just get a thimbleful today. Just get a little cupful of his glory and drink it deep. And what you'll find is that tomorrow you're going to want more. You're going to want to go back to the fountain and get more. And then it's going to, it's going to become this, this overriding, controlling uh, thirst of the soul. I want more Christ. I need more of him. I long for him. I, I, I pursue him with all that is within me. He is my desire, the pursuit of my heart. He is what my mind is fixed upon. That's what it means to set your mind on the things above. Would you stand with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, oh Lord, help us. Help us, Lord. Uh, the things of this world have such a strong hold on our hearts and our minds. Oh, even now we can sense it fighting, trying to gain control, Lord, but help us give by your Holy Spirit. May he help us to resist. Oh, God, fix our hearts and our minds on your son this week. May we find great joy in him, great delight. And then when we come back for more, may we find more to be had. Minister to your people. Feed their souls. May we see Christ more and more each day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing.